Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks trade their jock straps to the geeks for their slide rules. In this episode, we speak with Professor Dennis Frost of Kalamazoo College about the recent Paralympic Games and their fascinating history. Professor Frost is the Wen Chao Chen Professor of East Asian Social Sciences, Director of East Asian Studies, and Chair of the History Department at Kalamazoo College. He is also the author of two books about Japanese sports, More Than Medals, A History of the Paralympics and Disability Sports in Post-War Japan, and Seeing Stars, Sports Celebrity, Identity, and Body Culture in Modern Japan. I met Dennis a few years back and have really enjoyed getting to know him over the years, and not only because our research interests intersect. So I hope you will enjoy our broad discussion about Professor Frost's journey to becoming an award-winning historian and why he believes that much more must be done to properly amplify the true message of the Paralympic Games specifically and disability sport in general. doing well did you guys get any of the remnants of the the ida storms or did it pass you by we got a little rain the other night but not anything like what other places got i think new york got pounded it sounded like it's yeah. brutal yeah of course we have the fires up in the mountains which are bringing smoke down to us yeah uh, making yeah. life miserable for running the kids around every day yeah um, but listen i i don't want to take too much of your time and i really appreciate you coming back to talk with me and follow up. Yeah, no uh, worries. I want to congratulate you first and foremost on being promoted to full professor. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Congratulations. What an accomplishment. Yeah, pretty exciting news. Absolutely. And the second thing, as I mentioned before, I really just want to thank you for coming back to speak with me again and following up with what you shared with our students at St. Mary's in early June. And like a few of the other guests I've had on the show, you were gracious enough to take part in that colloquium we did on the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics, which in the case of the Olympics just uh, concluded recently and the Paralympics will conclude just in a couple of days now. And thank you again for doing that, Dennis. Yeah, no, I'm happy happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So before we start talking about these historic Olympics and Paralympics and how you look at them as a historian, let me start at the beginning as I like to do on the show and ask you a few questions about your own experiences in sports. What was the first sport you played? I played baseball when I was was really little, like a, a lot of kids, I think, in smaller towns in the U.S. And then I was a runner all the way through junior high and high school, cross country and track. Uh-huh. And at what age did you start considering thinking about sports on a deeper level? I, I would think I once I got into high school, I think I thought of myself as an athlete. Our school was very much a football school, the high school I went to, but definitely saw myself as an athlete and you know, two sport athlete, cross country and track. Loved being on the teams and having this group of people that I was interacting with outside of classes and things like that. A lot of my friends were on the team too. So that, that made it extra nice. Was that your core identity growing up being an athlete? No, I wouldn't say it was my core identity. I I was into everything. I went to a small high school, so I did pretty much every single thing you could do. Mm-hmm. I was in the drama. I was in marching band. I was a, a runner. I did the quiz team, and I was academics were obviously a big part of what I did even back then. So sure, so it was all part of who I was, but it wasn't necessarily the core. And what about the sports you watched 
on television. I did not grow up in a house where we watched a lot of sports. It was one of those things. It wasn't like we were anti-sports, but we just, if it was on, we watched it, especially compared to like my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather always had the sports on TV. I probably watched more sports when I was at his house than I did at my own house. It was football, baseball. I, I remember going to some some professional baseball uh, games in Cincinnati Reds, seeing them play. I think I got free tickets because of grades or something. And so I went to a couple of those games. So that's some of my earliest professional sports memories are, are baseball related, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember those ticket promotions for yeah. good students. We have those around here too. I, don't, I wonder if they still do those. I don't know. They were always up way up in the, like way, way, way up there. <laughs> yeah, they great, don't give great. me front row seats, even yeah. if you have a 4.0. Maybe that's a... Uh... That's something we should talk to the sports marketing folks about. <laughs> it, certainly around here, uh, the Oakland A's, they need some fans. So that would be one way to do it. And then what about coaches and teachers and, and maybe writers as well? Anybody inspire you when you were growing up? I would say you know, I had a, he wasn't my coach necessarily, but he was, he was one of my history teachers in high school, Bill Harris, who was, he coached the, the women's track team. And I think he coached, was one of the assistant coaches on the football team. He was an energetic history instructor. I already liked history, but I really fell in love with it then. And then when I got into college, of course, that's my college professors, Jim Huffman, who's still a, a really close friend. Was I was fortunate enough to have, take classes with him and learned a lot, really inspired my interest uh, in Japan. So yeah, a lot of teachers, probably teachers, one of the coaches, I had great coaches, cross-country coach was great in high school. I didn't continue with athletics in, in college, but... Yeah, that's definitely the, the teachers in high school, kind of especially the history folks, which makes sense, I guess, seeing where I ended up. But Yes, yes. And so what was it about history that struck you as an interesting field to study? I think I, I just have always loved knowing what happened um, and why it happened. And I think when I was younger, it was much more about just figuring out these who these famous people were and these famous events. And the more I've gotten into it, of course, the more I've learned how complicated everything is. And I do love complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, if anything, that's a that's a flaw for somebody who's trying to write books, um, <laughs> because the more complex you make it, the harder it is to piece it all together in a short, concise way. Yes, indeed. I can um, certainly relate to that. So that's, I think for me, that's as the more I got into it, the more I discovered like, there's so many layers and so many questions and so many unanswered questions, so many questions that we can continue to ask, even if something that is really well known. That's what I, I really loved about uh, history, hmm. still love about history. And so you had this inspiring professor as an undergraduate. And then I think you did research even before you started your PhD. Is that right? You went to Japan to do some research? Yeah, I actually I studied abroad while I was in college. I mm -hmm. spent a year in Osaka area or academic year. In was the that Gaidai? Yeah, Kansai Gaidai. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And and that was that was the moment where I decided I wanted to be study history. I had actually gone there planning to be. I was still planning to be an international lawyer uh -huh. um, when I arrived in Japan. But then I happened to be like I joked like I spent alternate weekends one in Osaka, one in Kyoto. I would go back and forth between the two cities because Gaidai's right in between. And fell in love with just the history in Japan and Kyoto, especially like being there, seeing these ancient temples. That as a history buff already, it was all like I just fell in love. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And so then uh, I spent a year after I graduated from uh, college, I spent a year in Okinawa doing research more on contemporary politics down there at that point, the, particularly the, the politics around the anti-base movement in Okinawa. And then I spent a year up in, in northern Japan. So about as far apart as you can get in Japan. And I wasn't quite Hokkaido, but almost. By the time January hit, I was like freezing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so those are research-based years. I did some work. I was at a university there in Iwate. I also worked uh, part-time as an English instructor, translator, doing stuff like that. But then I was working on kind of projects related to the women's suffrage movement as what I was looking at in particular. I'd done my mm -hmm. undergraduate thesis on that in Japan. And it turns out Iwate was not particularly active in it. But what's fascinating is that the prefecture right next door, Akita, really was. So that was that's what I was working on at that point. And then I ended up in graduate school after that. And so in graduate school, you already had these two 
really very interesting topics that you've been looking at. What made you switch? So yeah, this is something I think my uh, graduate school advisor still to this day is like, how in the world did this end up where you ended up? But really, it, it's one of those cases where you just follow your nose. When you see something interesting, you keep following it. And as I tell students, you never know where it's going to take you. I was taking a class themed around the idea of the modern boy in okay. Japan, and in contrast to the modern girl, which is a very famous kind sure. of image in Japan. So we were like, what about the modern boy? And that's what the class theme was about. And so I was looking at sports as a topic and just kept running into again and again, references in the 20s and 30s to things that I didn't expect to see in magazines magazines and newspapers, particularly celebrities that were like, there was one particular article that I read that was about, it was about college baseball players that were being referred to by a single name, not even necessarily their family name, sometimes it's their given name, sometimes a family name, but, and the readers would have clearly known who they were. Mm -hmm. I was like, how, I didn't of course know who they were because this is 80 years later, nobody knows who these people are. But I was like, how in the world did they get to the point where you have essentially sports stars at the college level in the twenties and on baseball teams. And so that was what that led me to my dissertation project, which was the history of sports stars in Japan. And then that, that eventually led to the first book. That's right. And, and so you were studying sports celebrity in Japan. And then, of course, you finish that project and you publish your book with Harvard and you decide, I want to write another book. And what was it that made you decide to write about the Paralympics? This is something I talk a little bit about this in the introduction to the book, because I think that's an important part of explaining how I get to a project for the reader so that they know where I'm coming from. I think even more so as someone who's not disabled, or at least not currently disabled, and an American talking about Japan and disability communities in Japan, I wanted to explain where I was coming from. So it really is twofold. I was actually teaching a class as I was finishing up the dissertation. I was teaching a class and a class that I still teach called Sports in East Asia. And at that time, I had the students do group projects on the Olympic Games that had been held in East Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were several, and there's even more now. But even back then, there were several. So this is around 2006. And one of the students came to me, her group was working on the Nagano Olympics. And she came to me and asked, can I do something on the Paralympics? And I said, sure. And then I realized, I was like, I don't even know what that is. And how is that possible? I've been studying sports now for five years intensively, and I know a lot about these different things. How do I not know about this major international event? Mm. Uh, And so that kind of sparked an interest. And I did some preliminary digging, didn't find much in English. And I was like, this is a potentially interesting topic. So that was laid the first seed there. I was still finishing up the the dissertation and the the first book. And then as I finished that first book, that was right around the time that my younger son uh, was born with spina bifida. And so he has some long-term impairments. In particular, he, he uses a wheelchair for kind of distance and things like that. And he was getting to the age where he was starting to to want to do sports. He was seeing other kids around him doing sports and want to do sports. And so we knew we were going to have to look for something adapted. And I had, having had this kind of memory of this Paralympics, I knew that these were out there, found that they actually had a pretty decent program near us. And he got really involved and he's still really involved uh, in sports. And so this became the disability sports angle from the personal side is it's something that I'm engaged with going to a lot of events and looking for teams and looking for activities, attending tournaments. So that's something I do on the personal side that then intersected. And I was like, and I knew I was like, I've got this and there's material out there on it. Maybe I should do something with it. So I started really the first time I went and did research in Japan was 2011, Mm -hmm. uh, which is before they actually won the 2020 games. You didn't have nearly the amount of publicity that they eventually achieved, but in 2011, it was still pretty new topic. And it's been remarkable to see from 2011 to 20, even 2017, when I was in Tokyo, again, doing research long-term, it was remarkable what had happened in that six year period of time. And you would attribute that to them winning the bid in 2013 to host oh, the yeah, definitely, Paralympics. Definitely. Mm-hmm. The publicity that came with winning the bid and then the need to play on this event. And there had been some promotional event because they had bid before for the previous games, of course. That's um, right. 
Uh, and so there had been some promotional events around the, Olymp- the Paralympics, but it really just took off once they won the bid. The media coverage just boomed. And there's like, in my book, I've got charts that show this. They're, they're from another Japanese writer who writes on the Paralympics as well. He's, he went and did the counts of the different articles. And it's, it's just remarkable. It's like just like skyrocket uh, mm-hmm. after 2013. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up media coverage because, of course, you and I would have probably rather have been in Japan to watch yeah, these games, but we course. weren't able to. And so we must give credit to the media for uh, for mm-hmm. sending these images back to us here in the States. But what was your impression of watching from afar? I will be honest that I don't tend to watch Olympic coverage, particularly <laughs> Olympic coverage uh, very mm. much. It tends to annoy me uh, and I tend to annoy other people that I'm watching with. So I don't actually watch a lot of it. I read a lot um, of articles and stuff like that. So I, I don't tend to watch the, the coverage. And part of that is that I'm always a bit frustrated by the kind of the frequency of the uh, the interruptions and especially the way in which the pre-recorded stuff, which a lot of this stuff in Japan has been pre-recorded yes. uh, and the way that they splice it up with these every five minutes you have a commercial. And so it just drives me crazy. If I'm being honest, yeah, I have, but I've been following it particularly more in kind of print media. These were going to be special games for Japan. And I think they have become special games in a way, but not in the way people intended. The, the coronavirus, of course, and the pandemic situation in Japan, the way that it escalated the way that, you know, that for a, from a lot of perspectives, the government did not handle things very well. In some ways from the beginning, but particularly in these last, the last six months or so, I think, has just made for a situation that was in some ways unfortunate for the games, but also understandable. I think a lot of the sentiment around it um, and the frustrations around it, it was pretty, it was great to see Japan do so well. It wasn't surprising to see them do so well and winning all the, the medals that they did. But the Paralympics, they've done a little less uh, well than they, I think they had hoped. And, and I think there's some, some interesting kind of questions about that that I'm thinking about now. But I've been mostly paying attention probably more to the Japanese stuff because that's what I've been researching. Okay. But I think the coverage in Japan of the Paralympics has been pretty good. The coverage in the US has actually been way better than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's a positive development for the Paralympics that I'm hearing you know, my brother-in-law sending me text and saying, hey, did you see this? And, and they say, we watched this sport called bocha. I say, have you ever seen them? Yes, I have. So th- I think these are things that like American audiences don't tend to get. And so that's yes. a really great thing that's coming for this Paralympics. So as, as much as the, the fact that we were reliant on media in some ways, like that's been, we were going to be reliant. The vast majority of fans are reliant on media always for the that's Olympics right. and Paralympics. Right. So the fact that they're getting more coverage is I think a, a bonus for, for the Paralympics and kind of the future of the games, particularly in American context. And tell my listeners about this uh, bocha. I'm not familiar with it. So it's, bocha is a sport that's, it's unique to the Paralympics in some ways. It's similar to like bulls or, and I've never played bulls, so I don't actually know if it's exact how similar it is or not. Uh, but okay. it involves, you, you have a ball um, that you're throwing or rolling uh, down a ramp and depending on your level of impairment, and this is mainly for people it's a sport that, that is, is that people with fairly high levels of impairment are able to participate in. So this mm-hmm. is one of the few, it's a lot of the sports like wheelchair basketball. I mean, you've got to be moving really fast back and forth on the court and you don't use electric chairs, but these are sports that, that kind of people with higher levels of impairment are able to engage in. And so it's fairly unique to the, Olymp- the Paralympics in that sense, but you're, it's about getting the ball into a, a particular place and then getting your opponent's ball out of that spot. So similar, I think in some ways, um, and I'm blanking on the sport, the winter sport where you slide the thing oh, on the curling. Ice. Curling, yes. I have uh-huh. a, a good friend who does curling. He, he would be upset if I, he knew I forgot the name of it. Well, yeah, don't send it's, him it's, a copy of the episode. But yeah, it's similar to that in, in some respects, that it's about kind of target areas and getting the ball. But it's a sport that has actually in, in some ways taken off in Japan as a result of the promotion tied to the Paralympics. I think one of the things, I'm actually getting ready to talk about this in a, a short piece I'm writing, but Tokyo or Toyota, who's a major sponsor for the Olympics and Paralympics, actually opened a bocha they, in their lobby in their Tokyo offices. They created a bocha 
Asian court. And then some of their employees were coming after work and playing bocha or doing lunch breaks. They'd go play bocha. And lots of interesting stuff like that is, is, has happened that probably wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had the Paralympics in Japan. And so it's given new attention to the sport and the people that are playing the sport. And they just won. I just saw that one of the Japanese athletes won individual gold. So it's been a, a positive thing for Japan in lots of ways. How interesting. Thank you, Dennis. And so let's talk about this article that you recently wrote for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm-hmm. They have a journal called Humanities. And as you note there, this year, Japan alone sent its largest ever delegation to the Olympics with 254 athletes competing across 22 sports. And this number of athletes is really remarkable because it's vastly higher than Japan sent when it participated in the 1964 Tokyo Paralympics, at which time there were a total of 350 athletes from all 22 countries that participated. So what do you attribute this remarkable growth in the Paralympics globally, but also in Japan? So I think there's you know, several things uh, there. And, and part of it is that you're talking almost 60 years now of history. And so that's a big part of it. And it gives something 60 years and it's going to continue to develop if it's had support and kind of money behind it. And that's one of the other key developments here. So if you're thinking about this from the global perspective, the IPC to their credit, has done a really great job of kind of marketing the games and partly by tying them much more closely to the Olympics. And so there's been a number of agreements uh, that have been reached between the IOC and the IPC for hosting and how that's going to work and how marketing of the games is going to work and how it's a joint bid process now. And when you do that, that creates the opportunity for this growth uh, in terms of the games, like the size and the scale of games can grow because the venues are prepared to host them from the beginning. And so I think that's a key component here. But that's even really that's the late 80s and 90s where that kind of begins to manifest itself. You start seeing that growth happen because that's when the IPC is created and established essentially is 89. So that's a fair, another kind of key factor. I think on the Japanese side, the biggest thing is that in 64 is where they're really introduced to the games. And that's something I talk a lot about in that article. Like they had no real exposure before this. They're really introduced to the Paralympics for the first time in 1964. And then after that, what you, is you see continued, especially in certain areas, you see these pockets of places in Japan where they're continuing really actively to promote disability sports. And so because of that, it makes it a lot easier than when you do have a big national event like this, that you have people that are trained, that mm-hmm. people that know how to organize events like this, that people that know how to officiate events like this. And so you have experience essentially. And that is one of the other factors that allows you to train and get new people. They also, on the Japanese side, it was remarkable uh, what they were trying to do for this. And they, they did this in, in 98 in the Nagano games. You know, they had the largest Japanese team they'd ever sent to a winter Paralympics too at that point. I think still the largest that Japan's ever sent to a winter Paralympics. I think that's still the case. And part of it's being at home. You don't sure. have to travel internationally. That's part of it too. But, but they actively recruited. And so they were going around doing promotions. They would have these events tried out and, and people that showed some interest and skill. Then they were like, why don't you come do this and come work in this training facility with us and we'll get you ready for this. There was money and time and, and expertise that was poured into this. They're also doing a lot with training officials and coaches. There's now certification processes and they're kind of trying to create more training so that people don't have to just go to a rehabilitation center so that maybe their high school coach isn't certified to do this, but he knows somebody who is. So if, for example, like my son would, if he were in Japan, he would, somebody would say, oh, he's in, he's using a wheelchair. We know somebody who does wheelchair tennis. We don't do it ourselves, but we know somebody who does. We can hook him up with that and get him into this kind of slotted into this program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that has been an effort on the Japanese side. And I suspect that's the case. In fact, I know that's the case in places like Britain that they've Mm -hmm. done something. And there's a lot of other places. China, I think, has essentially plugged the Paralympians into their Olympic kind of system. And that's why you see uh, them being particularly dominant, I think. So I think that there's lots of things that are contributing factors. But the the Japanese Mm -hmm. side is one that I got a little bit closer look at over the last several years. 
Sure. Yes, indeed. And as you also write, in 1964, Tokyo had no official obligation to host the Paralympics alongside the Olympics. I, I found that to be very interesting, but just something that, like you say, history is very complicated. And that yeah. was a level of complexity I hadn't really ever considered. But in those days, there was really little government support or funding to promote disability mm -hmm. sports. Most people in Japan in the 60s had never even heard of the Paralympics. And medical specialists dismissed the idea of athletic events for people with disabilities. And to make matters worse, people with disabilities have really historically been segregated from the broader population of Japan and put into institutions. And so the 64 Paralympics were instrumental in helping to raise awareness, as you write about, and particularly about how people with disabilities were being treated and conceptualized outside Japan, primarily in the West. So I'm, I'm curious if you can tell the listeners a little bit more about that part of the story. Yeah. So part of this is that, as you said, this is something that, and I mentioned before, it's something that the Paralympics are new to Japan. They don't know what they are. There is a history of sports for people with disabilities in Japan that is really still underexplored uh, that predates the Paralympics. Some of it is tied to the wartime effort and mm -hmm. you have a lot of for injured soldiers and things like that are coming back. There was actually sports meets and things like mm -hmm. that we know happened. We don't know what happened to the people that were organizing them and how some of them plugged into these new Paralympic kind of activities or not. So there is some kind of prehistory there, but there's no institutions and there isn't, as you said, no government support for this. And many of the people, and particularly the thing to remember too about the early Paralympics is that they were only for uh, athletes with spinal cord injuries. The Paralympics that we see today are essentially multi-disability events, right? So you have people with you know, spinal cord injuries, people with visual impairments, people with uh, limb impairments. So all sorts of different kind of uh, disabilities are in featured in the Paralympics now. That really did not happen until the 70s, the late 70s as a, a kind of unified kind of event for different groups. There was sporting events for all those different groups, but they weren't necessarily held at the same spot. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the things that made Tokyo 64 unique is that they actually did hold, uh, they held the international, what they called the Stoke Manville Games at the time, which was this game that was the Paralympics. And then they had this national meet where they had brought in other gr uh, groups of people with other types of impairment and had them compete in sports as well. So Japan actually was a, a groundbreaking, transcending kind of place, even in 64. But so that's one of the things is that those people with, especially the spinal cord injuries in Japan, what the, the kind of situation was for most of them is that they would have an injury or they would have an illness and that would, would have them end up, they would end up in the hospital and then they might not ever leave the hospital or they might end up kind of spending the rest of their life in their home with their family members taking care of them because you, know, you did have some kind of public rehabilitation facilities, but still there was this kind of idea that this is something the family should be doing. And that's an old idea. And there's kind of roots of that even earlier in, in Japanese history even related to some of the military stuff. So that was the expectation for a lot of these people is that from, from social perspectives and even for the individuals themselves, I'm going to be, this is how I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a hospital or in this facility uh, or at home. And so what happens with 64 is that, and what, what in some ways what leads to 64 happening is this idea of kind of like, wait, there's different ideas out there about bringing these people. They don't have to spend the rest of their lives in these hospitals or these rehabilitation facilities. We can help them get back into kind of life, find, help them find jobs. We need to create those opportunities. And so sports was seen as one of the key ways to do this. It was also seen that events like the Paralympics were seen as a key way to promote those new ideas in society more generally, because just promoting working opportunities for people with disabilities is not necessarily going to get generate a lot of attention, but if you can do it as part of an international sporting event, then you're going to get a lot more attention, a lot more media coverage. People might listen and hear in a different way than they did before. So that's kind of the idea that we're seeing here and that plays out in connection with the Tokyo Games. And what do you think it is about that? Is it the attraction of the 
the sports being fun to play and as you say sort of helping people um get their life back in a way or i'm, I'm struggling for the right words here dennis but what do you think it is about on, on two sides, both for the athlete themselves, the person themselves, but also to attract attention from others? Yeah, that's it's a good question. And it's one that I can understand why you're struggling because like it's attention that the, the movement itself still manifests. Okay. Uh, the Paralympic movement today, I think, still manifests this tension between what I think of as kind of rehabilitation. The purpose is rehabilitation and kind of this social element of the games. And then there's this competitive element to the games, right? Sure. Uh, and so these are competing tensions in the movement that have been there in some ways from the beginning, because part of what 64 was supposedly about, in, at least in the terms of the rhetoric, is that it wasn't about competition. And I think this is, this was, that was mentioned that in that article as well. That's this right. wasn't about competition. It was supposed to be about these people rehabilitating, right? Yes. We're showing that these people can rehabilitate, that they have rehabilitated, that they can, again, lead lives outside of the, the rehabilitation facilities and the hospitals. Um, and so that was part of what it was about, except that they would always emphasize the fact that these were not field days, that they were competitive. So there was this weird kind of tension even at the beginning around mm -hmm. this kind of, it's rehabilitation, but it's competitive sport and it's sport that we want to market and we want people to see and we want to sell it because it's meant to be inspirational to other people. And so there's really interesting tensions there. So I see where you're, where you're struggling with the, the way you're raising the question. At the individual level, I think that in 64 in particular, I think this is less, definitely less true now. In fact, a lot of athletes will be very explicit about the fact that we're athletes, we're elite athletes, we are not seeking rehabilitation. But in 64, a lot of the athletes were coming out because they didn't have programs in Japan at the time. Many of them had like just started sports a month or two, maybe at best a year before the Paralympics started. And then as a result, they are actually patients. They are still seeking rehabilitation. And so for some of them, what they talk about with their experiences is that this did help them see different opportunities. And there's some documentary footage that I've just been able to see recently within the last uh, year or so, actually, because they just discovered it in 2019. But it, they talk about, the people they're talking about is that they wanted to talk to people from abroad and see what their lives were like and see if mm. there was ways and ideas that they could get from them for kind of ways to promote changes in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of two-way uh, street, right? That it's meant to bring these people together and give them this opportunity to share and to show them that they can you know, have this other life. But for the individuals, it's very much, it is doing that. But it's also a way to say, we know that there's problems here in Japan and we'd like to do something different. And so maybe finding out from what other people, what the situation is for them, maybe we can think about doing some of those things here. And it would seem to me that at that time, these folks would have been struggling both with kind of structural and cultural barriers to them being able to rehabilitate themselves, being able to, you know, see yeah. themselves as athletes. Yeah, and so absolutely. Forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The social and structural barriers are kind of immense. The fact that you're talking about, you, you can imagine Tokyo today is pretty famous for being accessible, but it That's wasn't right. in 1964. People were having, had to be carried down the stairs of a lot of places. And, and so things like just ramps were not standard anywhere. It's curb cuts. Tokyo didn't even have a lot of sidewalks at that point. And that's part of what they were talking about. They talked about the a huge cause of, of accidents in Japan that, that left people in these facilities was traffic accidents, either people with cars crashing each other or cars hitting pedestrians. So that's already an issue. And then you're talking about people in wheelchairs using the streets alongside cars, then, you know, that's another whole issue. So the, those barriers, and then, like you said, the, the cultural barriers, kind of the attitudes um, that can't imagine that somebody that is using a wheelchair can live a normal life, for lack of a better word, that they, right. can, that they could be just like everybody else out working, have a family that would have been hard to imagine for a lot of people, including, like I said, some of the athletes themselves didn't see that future for themselves initially. And then after the games, 
they say, oh, I can imagine something like that, something different. Yeah. And also to imagine them as being fiercely competitive. Right. I show this video, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with. It's called uh, Murder Ball. It's oh, yeah. a documentary film about mm -hmm. the wheelchair. I guess they technically call it wheelchair rugby. Yes. But it's a fascinating game. And this film is really interesting. We have some great discussions in my sports sociology class about it. What do you make of that film, Dan? I think it's an interesting film. And it's when I, I don't show the whole film, but I show clips in some of my classes. And I talk about how, in some ways, it gets at the tensions in the disability sports movement, like this yes. and the disability kind of community, this question of kind of the super crip image is sometimes mm -hmm. referred to as. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's because there's there is elements of that you see in the film where there's one point in the scene, and I think it's even in the trailer where they talk about how we're doing this for medals. And what they're talking about there explicitly is the fact that this is not the Special Olympics. And so there's these kind of, there's ways in which you can see those elements that, that come out. And I think it's a really interesting element. It also is, and I think I've read some critiques about this of the film, like the kind of hyper-masculinity yes. on display there. We read there. that article too uh, we, yeah. in the class, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is... Um, and that the idea of kind of sports as a way to reclaim masculinity for people that have some sort of impairment. And that's a, a, a pretty common critique in the in the disability sports community and, and things like that. And so it's, it's a really fascinating glimpse of it. There's a new one out and your, your uh, listeners should be aware. It's called Rising Phoenix, okay, which is it was on Netflix. I think it was, they actually released it even more broadly than that. And it's pretty well done. I think it's uh, a more diverse kind of representation, people from different countries. So it's not just the US and Canada. You get different representations of different types of impairments and uh, things like that. You also get to see the, the kind of underside a little bit. You don't dig too deeply into it, but the underside of kind of the situation in Rio where the games were very nearly, the Paralympics were very nearly canceled mm -hmm. uh, because they were told essentially that the Olympics ran so far over budget that they didn't have any money for the Paralympics. So there was very, came very close to being canceled. Oh my. I didn't so you know get that. a little bit of that. You get a little bit of that story in the, the documentary as well. Oh, so. definitely check that out. So let's go back a little bit historically, because I want to talk about this really heroic man named Dr. Nakamura Yutaka, who you write yeah. about uh, in your book, but you're also writing a, bi a separate biography about him, I understand. Yeah. And so Dr. Nakamura, who's known as the father of the Paralympics and is really almost single-handedly to credit for selling the idea of doing the Paralympic Games in 1964 to supporters. I'm curious if you can talk about him and his story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he is a really fascinating and, and, and hugely important figure in the history of the Paralympics and also the history of disability sports in Japan and the broader region. In many ways, pushed the envelope of the, the broader Paralympics too, particularly with this idea of kind of the use, promoting multi-disability events. And, and so that was something that he was really eager to do and was really actively pushing some of the key figures in Europe uh, on that as well. But Nakamura is a figure who, it, like, He's an orthopedic surgeon from the city of Beppu, which is in Oita. Beppu is famous for its hot springs. He's, his father was a doctor, so his father wants him to be a doctor too. He goes to medical school towards the end of, of the war period, starts, heads into that direction and ends up in medical school working with a number of the people that, that I had said, there's a history of kind of people, wounded soldiers with, that are seeking rehabilitation. He ends up working with somebody that had, had done that. Supposedly he ended up doing rehabilitation because he wanted to be an engineer and he figured rehabilitation would have the most cool stuff, that new things that he could work with technologies and things. So that's why he's drawn to it. But even then, like he was on the cutting edge of kind of, he publishes a book, he and his kind of, I think it's his, one of his professors publish a book fairly early on, gets him some attention in Japan. And so as a result of that, they sent him in 1960 
to Europe and the United States on a study tour to go study rehabilitation practices in other places. And it's then that he encounters the Paralympics and the kind of early Paralympics at Stoke Manville Hospital. He said they're called the International Stoke Manville Games because they originated at Stoke Manville uh, by a guy named Ludwig Gutmann, who was also as a kind of neurosurgeon in England that develops this idea of using sports as a key component for people with spinal cord injuries to get them moving, to help them get out of the, the bed. And part of this is that there's, and there's all these studies and then you, you read the histories of this, there's all these numbers that get thrown around. 50% of their patients are back to work within six months or something. And, uh, and the numbers are all over the place. So I just threw that out there, but they, I've certainly seen a number like that. I've seen them higher. I've seen them lower, but this is something that Nakamura sees. And he's essentially seeing the differences of what's happening in Japan, where like, Again, like I said, these types of patients would be in the hospital or in their rehabilitation for the rest of their lives, not going out and finding work. And so he says there's something different here. And that's what inspires him to go back. He starts this movement in Oita locally to try and promote a sport and ends up holding the very first kind of of these kind of competitive sports meets using these new ideas coming in from Europe. And it's at that point that he also starts moving back and forth between Tokyo to promote this. There's other people that are involved. And that's a key point to remember here too, of course. As I said in the article, he plays an outsized role, but he's not, of course, the only guy involved. There's some other key players involved. Kasai Yoshisuke is somebody who's deeply involved with rehabilitation ideas and practices in Japan before this even. And so it has connections to the Japanese government. And so I think he plays a key role manipulating and maneuvering the government into kind of supporting this. There's a number of non-governmental organizations that get on board. But Nakamura is actively driving them. Often with this idea of, we say that we're a society committed to social welfare, But if the whole world is looking at us and wondering if we're going to do these games or not, and we don't, then that just makes a a mockery of our alleged commitment to this. So he's leveraging kind of international pressure on Japan, on these kind of other people to say, look, if we actually are committed to this, we should be doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's a key driving force for a lot of, but then he gets after the the Paralympics are held, but he continues to be involved. He, He actually founds a factory called Japan Sun Industries, I think is the English translation of that they use. And this is a factory that's set up specifically for people with disabilities to, it's to give them a place to work. So it's meant to be an accessible facility to allow them to live and work independently, ultimately, so they don't that after they leave a facility, they've had the experience of rehabilitation that then they can go have this job and kind of live in an apartment. And this is a, a, a business that actually starts off and it's fairly, fairly small, seems like it might not even succeed. And now is, I think, the largest employer in Beppu and actually has branch facilities in several other cities in Japan. But this is something that, again, this is a part of his story. He also is directly involved in the creation of a, a regional version of the Paralympics called the Far East and South Pacific Games for the Disabled, which went from 1975 to 2006, so about 30 years. And then he is also directly involved in the creation of the Oita Wheelchair Marathon, which started in 1981. And they had to cancel last year the international meet, but this year they're going to have their 40th uh, anniversary international marathon uh, in Oita. So big deal. He's a fascinating guy in, in many respects, very involved in rehabilitation internationally, not just in Japan, but but so the, lots of interesting stuff that he's working on and, and doing that, that I want to tease out more in the biography. And that's mm-hmm. probably why I'm looking to work on that now, or I am working on that now, but looking to explore that story a little bit. I look forward to seeing that, Dennis. Thank you for sharing that. So I read that Dr. Nakamura once said that Japan has, quote, become a mature society and must become a force that drives progress even further. And so I, I wonder what you think he meant by that. It's an interesting question because I'm not sure exactly when that would have been said, because uh, mm-hmm. I can imagine it at different points meaning different things to him. And partly what I'm thinking is that in the 60s, if this is in the 60s, as he's talking, using that as a marketing frame for the, the Paralympics. I think it's kind that's of a, what, yeah, because I yeah, found it on the Paralympics website. Yeah, if that's when it's from, then that is very much a, like Japan has economically developed 
and, and that gets back into this idea of we need to be promoting these kind of social welfare ideals mm -hmm. um, that we say we're committed to. And I think that's what he would be driving at in the 60s. I can also hear him saying something like that in the 70s, particularly around the idea of creating this Far East South Pacific games, the FISPIC games, because Japan at that point, in, particularly in the region, would have been in the leadership role. And so that Japan has this obligation now to take what Japan has learned in this 10-year period from the 64 to 75 and to spread these ideas to other places in the same way that they were brought to Japan, we need to take them to other places. So I can see that being the case there. The same thing being true of like Taiyo no Ie. Like this idea that we've got this society, we've committed to kind of social welfare, and now we really do need to kind of figure out how we can be a, a progressive beacon mm -hmm. uh, in creating these facilities, using them as models. Because And Taiyo no Ie was definitely marketed internationally, particularly in the, the Asia South Pacific region. This was portrayed often in the FISPIC materials as a place that like, look, this is what you can do if you have like, support and you're willing to make this commitment. This is the type of things you can achieve. So I can totally see that Japan's international role, like partly it's a pressure on Japan to make the changes, but then also I can see it being a, like Japan now has this obligation to be a leader more broadly. Mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. see both. And it, that fits very much with kind of his approach to things. I was going to say, way. it sounds like it, if he could have said it at different junctures of his life, then it sounds like it really does speak to the, the overarching goals that the man had. And you write about this push that, Japan had to internally play catch up to leverage the symbolism of the Paralympics to do so. And so you write, quote, most of the Japanese Paralympians in 1964 were patients coming from hospitals or rehabilitation centers, and many had only taken up sports in earnest in the years or months just prior to the games. So I w I'm curious if you could tell the story of Suzaki Katsumi mm -hmm. and how different disability sport was back then in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, so he was one of the athletes who competed in 1964 for the Japanese team. And I had a chance to interview him back in 2017. Last I heard, he was still doing pretty well and was eager to watch the games this year. I think I saw him featured just recently in a, another news story, partly because this is the second time Japan is hosting the athletes who... There, there wasn't many of them that kind of were, were still living, but the athletes who were suddenly celebrities in a way that in many in ways, they weren't even that famous back in 64. They become even more significant and partly because they have great stories to tell. And it's a, this nice kind of mirroring of kind of what has changed. You can see that. Uh, so he was someone who was injured in an accident, ended up at Nakamura's hospital because Nakamura, he was a doctor That's at a rehabilitation right. facility, ended up at Nakamura's hospital right as the Paralympics were in their planning stages and they're looking for athletes that they can take to these games. And what he told me is that he had he didn't really know what the Paralympics were and he never would have thought that he would be selected to go because he'd only been in the hospital a few months and there were people that had been there much longer mm. uh, have been doing some of this rehabilitation stuff but that he was selected to go and was doing you know training for the games but all the training of course is is, is medically medical training essentially it's rehabilitation practices so everything is being done for the purpose of kind of strengthening muscles or x activity is meant to do this and so he would did a lot of his swimming in the again oita is famous for its hot springs so they have these warm therapeutic baths so a mm -hmm. lot of his swimming practice was actually done in these therapeutic baths mm -hmm. uh, and one of the stories and I, I think i mentioned this a little bit in the the article but that when he actually got to the Paralympics and entered the swimming competition was really surprised by how cold the water was yes. compared to what he'd been <laughs> using. Partly because again, he'd never had, they didn't have the facilities that he could get to easily to train in. And again, he was not, he'd only been training for just a few months and he ended up, I think entered 
and I can't, this is, I should remember this, but I don't, but I think it's six different events and none of them were particular events that he chose. Okay. They were events that he was told you are competing in these in some uh -huh. ways. And I suspect probably by Dr. Nakamura said that you're going to do this because it will be good for you. But it was swimming events. He did, he was on the basketball team, I believe, maybe did ping pong and did some wheelchair races as well. But this is nothing he had trained for in, in, in the sense that we think of athletes now, where you look at the Paralympians now. There's no question that these people have been training for months and months. Many of them are essentially prof are professional athletes. Um, They're specialized athletes as yeah, well. Right? Hyper -specialized. Yeah, hyper-specialized. They're out to break records and, and out to win medal. And that was definitely, for, especially on the Japanese side, that was not what it was about right? Mm -hmm. the, in 64. Mm -hmm. It was not about the medal count didn't matter. And there was this, like I said, a tendency to downplay the competitive aspect. But now like they were aiming for 20 gold medals at these Paralympics, Japan was. So that was pretty explicit in a lot of their materials. That's a real difference. That's a pretty huge difference. It really is. And it, it's fascinating. I re remember you writing that Suzaki, quote, credited their experiences and interactions at the event at the Paralympics with helping them to imagine new futures for themselves and others with disabilities, close quote. And yet you also suggest that while the Paralympics raised awareness of issues related mm -hmm. to disability, that may be where the power of disability sport in Japan ends. Am I understanding that argument properly? What, I, what I'm getting at there is that uh, I guess that there's a danger in assuming that the Paralympics will make stuff change. And I think that is a, a kind of common assumption. You know, I've even read a lot of articles like this um, where I read something the other day that was like, the societies will just change by virtue of hosting the Paralympics. And I'm like, yeah, no, yes and no. And that's where... I think there's a danger in those kinds of assumptions. And that's what I'm toying with that idea in that context that yes, it did. It did bring awareness to questions around disability. It did lead to improvements and introductions of new rehabilitation techniques. It did at the individual level, I think had a pretty profound impact for athletes that competed in it. And probably for people with disabilities that saw some of these people that were going to these games and doing these things. And it might've opened up new possibilities. And of course, not everybody wants to be an athlete either. And that is, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the vast majority of us do not think of ourselves as athletes, especially once you get beyond a certain point in life. But I think that the danger in some ways of kind of thinking and that the Paralympics automatically change things is problematic. And that just by hosting something, you're going to improve attitudes towards disability. And that was something that they talked about that in 64. They talked about that in, in Oita in 75, when they hosted the, the Feast Pit Games. They talked about that in Kobe in 89, when they hosted them. They talked about that in mm -hmm. 98, when they hosted the Nagano Paralympics. They're talking about it in 2020. My question is always, if it can fix everything automatically, why didn't it fix it the first time? Why mm -hmm. do you need to keep hosting it to fix it? And the reality is that we don't expect the Olympics to fix things. If anything, we ex often expect them to make stuff worse. Why is there this expectation that the Paralympics are just going to fix what's wrong with society in terms of issues of disability? There's definitely potential for positive impact. But I think that the danger of assuming that will happen is part of the problem. How interesting. And so as I hear you talk about that, Dennis, I'm remembering Dr. Kate Linsky's episode here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. and, and she was quoting Professor Boykoff, Jules Boykoff, who I guess had thought of this idea of follow through with the Olympics, that there, there should be some way mm -hmm. of the, not only the promises that were made to Olympic host cities by the IOC and so forth, but also whether they were following through on those promises or keeping mm -hmm. those promises. Is there something similar that you think could be valuable in the Paralympic movement? I think so. And I think that the promises are obviously a different set of promises because the Paralympics are still, they're in many ways still a tag along event that you have to, it's integrated now into the bid process. But I think 
these promises, and they tend to be abstract promises mm. more on the, the other side. And I think that those are way harder to measure and get the follow through unless you've done a bunch of work on the front side, like surveys and of attitudes and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I don't know that always happens, but th- I think that it would be interesting to see. And I know that there are scholars that are working on those types of things. So this is what was said. These are the kind of ideas that were promoted in terms of London 2012, what actually happened. And it, it also depends on who you ask. Right. If you ask people that are deeply embedded in the Paralympic movement or in disability sports community, then there's one set of, you know, follow through, right? That that probably the follow-up is actually pretty on point. Mm-hmm. If you look at kind of people that are in, you know, communities that have a disability or impairment that are not involved in sports, they may look at this and say, Yeah, you promised this and didn't deliver. Because partly again, it gets into some of those abstract promises of we're gonna change social attitudes and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. things like that. And employment I was just talking with someone from Brazil and he was saying that there was a discussion about it was gonna lead to better employment. And in the immediate aftermath, that sounds like that might have happened. But he was suggesting to me, and again, I don't know, I've not done the research, but he was suggesting that that hadn't hadn't panned out nearly as to the extent that it had been promoted. There's things like that that I think a lot of it depends on which community you're talking to and then things like that. So this issue of a tag-along event is something I want to uh, probe a little bit more, if that's all right with you. Yeah, go ahead. Because you write in your book about Dr. Nakamura and the success that he has, and along with others, as you Mm -hmm. say, to help join the Paralympics with the Tokyo Olympics in 64. And with this decision to host the Paralympics, Japan becomes the first country outside of Europe to host the Paralympic Games. And yet... There isn't a domino effect right. that comes along with this, right? Dr. Nakamura's efforts don't lead to more countries or cities hosting, choosing to host the Paralympics alongside the Olympics. In fact, it was another 24 years before another city decides to host both the Olympics and Paralympics together. And that was Seoul, yeah. uh, Korea in 1988. And in between, there are many European and American cities that repeatedly reject requests to hold both sets of games together. So this notion of of the Paralympics still in your mind being a tag-along event, to me, parallels that inability mm-hmm. of the world community to realize the importance of putting these events together. Why was that the case? It, it's a good question. And it's something that I've thought about at various points. I will say that now, of course, it's mandated that as part of the whole bid process, this is mm-hmm. like you are hosting. And that's been the case uh, since around 2001, I think is when those agreements were signed somewhere around okay. there. So it became tradition, if you will, in after 88, when Seoul did it, then they made this case, this has been happening, and we want to make this continue to happen. But it wasn't mandated until a little bit later. But now they're required to and it's required to be part of an, an integrated bid process that that wasn't in 98. That wasn't the case. They still weren't integrated fully. The bid processes weren't they were separate processes. But Japan agreed to do that. Uh, and actually was really a pioneer and kind of the Olympic Committee working much more closely with the Paralympic Committee and part of the planning and thinking about the Olympic Village and kind of how that could be accessible, things like that. But part of what I think historically why it didn't catch on is that the Paralympics had minimal clout is one thing, right? In 60, in the 60s and the early 70s, they just, it was not an event that was attracting media attention. It was not the event that if you didn't have a, a driving force in your society for some reason or another was going to push this, it wasn't going to catch on. Because a lot of times what happens is the games ended up getting held in venues that were tied to rehabilitation in some way. At one point, the ones that were supposed to be held in, the ones in Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles games were originally the Paralympics were going to be held. I think it was a uh, University of Illinois, which had famous, they, they've actually had a long running kind of program there rehabilitation facility, but it ran into problems and ended up getting split. So some of the games were held in New York City. Some of them were held in the Stoke Manville facilities in England. So part of it is that unless you had an area that was committed, 
you didn't get that willingness to do this because it's extra time, it's extra effort, it's extra money. A lot of these places claimed that it was because they didn't have the facilities uh, available for people with disabilities, particularly wheelchair users, because again, that was from till about 1970s, that was the main component of the Paralympics was people with spinal cord injuries that are wheelchair users. And that was a common claim, like we don't have facilities that are going to be accessible. And there was no reason that they had to be accessible because even in the United States, ADA doesn't come to a little bit later. So, right. you know, that's another piece there. And so I think that's, those are all kind of a part and parcel of it. And the other thing is that it's not, the IPC did not exist as an entity, a kind of a central organizing body that was parallel to the IOC did not exist really until the late eighties, early nineties. And that also made it really hard at an institutional level. We tend to forget how complicated this stuff is. Mm. And if you're the IOC and somebody's coming to you and saying, we want to organize these games, they say, who do we talk to? And they say, oh, you got to talk to this group and this group and this group instead of just this one set of people. It just is, and if you aren't obligated to do that, then you're going to say, no, thanks. That seems too messy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another factor too, right? That's easy to overlook the institutional complexity of the disability sports organizations in the early period. They were messy. And so it was probably challenging to get the people on board and work together. Interesting. And what about corporate interests now? You mentioned Toyota has this mm -hmm. Bocha facility as at their headquarters, I think you said. And how is that playing a role? Because of course, mandating that the IPC and the IOC work together and a host city bid on the games, bid on mm -hmm. both games at the same time is one thing. Is the corporate interest, whether it's from a CSR, corporate social responsibility mm -hmm. standpoint, or just they want to improve their public relations or brand image mm -hmm. or whatever it is, how is that playing a role t today? I think a lot of it does come down to CSR. And I think that's if you look at companies that do support the disability sports, particularly in a Japanese context, again, that's what I know best. Sure, um, sure. But companies that support it, where you'll find that information is on their CSR pages. For example, like some of the major sponsors for the Oita Wheelchair Marathon, which I did quite a bit of research on for my book, mm -hmm. uh, the major sponsors... You, if you want to look at their sponsorships, they'll that information is on their corporate social responsibility page, and you can find out how they send volunteers every year or how they donate funds. Now, like the marathon gives out pretty hefty prizes to winners and record breakers and things like that. Those all have to come from corporate donations because the marathon itself was for many years was sponsored and run by the prefectural government, but mm. you can't give out prize money using taxpayer money. That doesn't that does not look good. So the money for these prizes is essentially all coming from corporate donors and, and other donations into the marathon. So the CSR work, I think is a big part of it. I, and I think places like Toyota take that pretty seriously. The other thing is for Toyota, this is also uh, marketing mm -hmm. in a non-CSR way because they have a pretty active, it's called Toyota Mobility. They've got a pretty active kind of campaign to market devices, not just cars, but other types of devices and, and ways to promote access for people, no matter what um, their needs might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is sales, right? This is a community that you can tap into and market with and from. And I think that Toyota's kind of seen that and in some ways jumped on that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, another factor there. The other thing is personal connections. I, I mentioned Tayo no Ie. You know, this factory that Nakamura started after the 1964 games, it's a factory that by 75, it's already 10 years old. And what they would do is they would make these uh, connections with Japanese corporations, big companies. And then those companies end up, because they have connections with Taiwan EA, they have connections with the people involved in organizing these events, then they commit money to them and personnel to them and things like that. And so mm -hmm. those commitments are now institutionalized in a way in the Japanese context. So Omoron, I don't, that's not a company many of your listeners would know, but if you're familiar with Japan, that's a name you see quite frequently yes. in Japan. Omoron 
is a major sponsor of the wheelchair marathon. And that's partly tied to this relationship that it has with Tayo no Ie going back to the seventies. And so there's lots of things that are now have just been integrated into the, these kind of events. Oh, interesting. I, you've talked about the distinction um, between the Paralympics and the Olympics, and you've called it a tag along event, which I which, find really fascinating. Um, probably some of the folks at the Paralympics would be annoyed with me for that. But, well, no, I, but I think that's perception. That's why I'm thinking about perception. Right. I think, yeah, I don't think that's your words per se, as much as it is your description of the history that you've studied. And I think there's still people out there who don't know, maybe even some mm-hmm. of my listeners that even the Paralympics and the Special Olympics are different things. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, I have, you, you, you wrote something in chapter five of your book about the Tokyo Olympics and the Paralympics, which were discussed together more often than perhaps any Olympics and Paralympics were, had ever been discussed before. Mm-hmm. You write, quote, I would suggest that the repeated emphases on Paralympic-related improvements in accessibility discussed in the following section served as a sort of moral cover for the well-documented exorbitant costs of the 2020 Games, even though most of those costs had little to do with accessibility projects. Mm -hmm. As pessimistic as this appraisal of co-optation might sound, such an approach would hardly be unique to Japan. Many have observed that the IOC's own increasing support for the IPC came in the wake of widespread negative publicity generated by bidding scandals, close quote. So I wonder if you can explain this point in a little bit greater detail. Yeah, so there's several things here, right? And this is not my research has looked into this, but folks have looked into kind of the timing for when the IOC starts being more willing to negotiate and work with the IPC. Mm. Uh, And it's in the aftermath of the scandals around, particularly the Nagano games uh, and the Salt Lake City games. And it's as those scandals are in the headlines, that's where they start saying, yeah, we're going to work more closely. They form these agreements with the the Paralympics. And, And so there's some scholars that have suggested that's, that is essentially was them looking for like moral cover, deflect some of these negative criticisms by saying, look, well, we are using our, our money and our efforts for this other sporting event, the Paralympics, which is and we've had it there, but we've never really formalized these connections. So I, that's what, what that is getting at. My point is around the fact the Tokyo games are, have been ridiculously expensive. And the lion's share of that is the new buildings that have been built, the f- new facilities that have been built. And we're just talking about the initial cost. Like we're not even talking about the long-term cost. And I'm sure some of your other uh, guests that you've had on have talked about the debacle that the Olympics can be for societies in terms of debt uh, yes. and things like that. So I won't get into that for here. But so as costs were continuing to rise, there was... I, I think you can see how this idea of promoting the Paralympics are being used for accessibility. We're having these games to promote accessibility. There's a very famous quote that I actually start the book with. It's the Tokyo governor, uh, Koike, saying essentially that the Paralympics are more important than the Olympics because we have an aging society and these games are going to help us make society more accessible for our aging society and people with disabilities. And so those ideas, they're important. And I, I want to emphasize that that's important. And ideally, that's what we want from an event like this, that it is going to promote these kind of changes society-wide, not just in the host city. But that is, in some ways, a way to, again, deflect away from the fact that like we're dumping tons of money into, what is it, two, two and a half billion or something that went into the new stadium, that went in to build that, that new national stadium, which ended up empty and is now going to probably be empty for almost all the, the future, there's not going to be events big enough to hold in there. So that type of deflection. The other kind of piece of this is that when cost runs started to happen and you had the situation with Fukushima and the 311 disasters, the, the tsunami, the earthquake, uh, and then the nuclear disaster, you had the situation then where many of those people were still in and still are uh, in temporary housing. Mm. And so people were saying, why are we spending money on these Olympics and bidding for the Olympics when... 
we have these areas which we could be concentrating and helping and rebuilding. And you know, I said, but the Olympics games are going to be about recovery. And then that's also where you start seeing the Paralympics get mapped on and saying the Paralympics are also about recovery. And so there's lots of interesting ways in which the Paralympics kind of get melded with the Olympics, particularly around these issues, as I see it, deflecting attention away from negative elements uh, of the Olympics. And so the Paralympics are kind of a cover uh, for mm. that. That's what I'm getting at there. And I hope that kind of clarifies what I'm thinking. It, Feel free to does. follow up. It does. It just, it, it, I wonder though, if you see it as almost an exploitation of these Paralympic athletes. I think it can be read that way. And so it's an interesting question. And I think in terms of what, as an athlete, like maybe you're being exploited, but you're going to take advantage of that exploitation to benefit yourself and benefit the movement. And maybe the people in the Paralympics know that in some ways they're being exploited in this way, mm -hmm. but they're going to take advantage of this to promote the movement, to grow the movement. I guess the question becomes how long can you tolerate that? And at what point is it detrimental to your movement because these are separate movements really right, the right. olympic movement and the Paralympic movement with separate goals, goals separate agendas yeah. and so at what point does it become detrimental to your movement to be linked to this olympic kind of organization the ioc and what they're doing and like i said it, there are there were potential consequences back in in rio when the cost ran over so much that they said sorry maybe the Paralympics won't happen and there was a lot of fear i think a lot among a lot of people that might happen here this year that You'd have the Olympics, the cases with, of coronavirus would grow up, and then they would cancel the Paralympics because of, mm -hmm. because of that. So that is, those are, we're continuing concerns right up to the day that they opened. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. The last question yeah. I want to ask you is the same thing that I, I ask all my guests, but in the context of our discussion, I'd like to focus on the issue of disability sports. So what do you think the power of disability sports is? I think there's two ways you can take it. One is at the individual uh, level. And I think that Zaki Katsumi is a great example of that, that it, it does have this potential to open up new opportunities. It's something that my son, it's, I love the fact that he gets to be, to play on teams. He's such a, he's such an outgoing kid without the opportunities to participate in disability sports that that would look really different. We'd have to figure out how to do that. So there's different things like that. I think it opens up new opportunities. And so I love the idea of disability sports, creating those opportunities. Not that everybody has to take them or should have to take them. There should be lots of opportunities for people with disabilities, of course. but this option should be there. And I think that's the one thing where you see kind of power. Uh, and potential of sports. The other is the societal stuff. And I've been touching on this uh, kind of throughout the discussion. And I do think you know, as much as I suggested that you can't fix it, an event like the Paralympics can't fix a society, what it can do is it can create the opportunity for to be heard in a very different way. Mm. Um, and maybe on a larger scale. I've talked about this in a lot of contexts is kind of amplification. And especially if you're in a society where those things are already happening where there's people that are involved in disability activism, disability rights, different types of action is already happening. Then you have an event like this that is drawing media attention to it. And it all of a sudden gives you this forum to share that in a way that you might never have been able to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the, the best examples I found of this in my own research was in Nagano in, in 98, uh, when they hosted the Winter Games, that you had these all these people that were involved in these kind of dis disability activism and the work in the region doing things they come together and they use these games as an opportunity to create a new organization, which is going out and doing these surveys around Nagano and saying, is this barrier free? Is it barrier free? And that barrier free idea is that we hear it a lot now around Paralympics in Tokyo. They were talking about this in 98 and they were talking about it even before that, but it was just that all of a sudden people were listening on a larger scale. And that's, I think the difference with Tokyo too, is that Tokyo, partly because it's the, the center of Japan in many ways, the political, economic, media center, Yes, it's had a really loud voice. And I think that that potential, that's the power 
uh, of something like this is that it can get that out there. Is it going to fix it? It can, but I think that's up to the people in the society to actually do the work, but they can at least hear it. They can hear about it in a way that they might not have before. That's yes. And I think we all hope that these efforts lead people to try to make their own local communities more inclusive, don't we? Yeah. Yes. That's the idea in the the long run. That's what we want. That's not just going to happen in one place, in this one place on the other side of the world, but we hear about it. We're like, oh, I should try that. Think about that myself. Absolutely. Thank you, Dennis, so much. I really appreciate you being my guest today for a second time coming back to do this. I know you're very busy, so it means a lot. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, Dennis. Let's catch up again soon. Take care. Good luck with everything. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that will wrap up our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the Paralympics and disability sports and the rich and complex history behind both. I hope you're having a great day out there. And thank you very much, as always, for listening.